Welcome, friends, to the Celluloid Pudding Podcast. Hello, Sam. How are we doing? I'm doing fine. How are you, Beth? (laughs) I'm doing really good. Um, So we're going to jump right into our discussion, which uh, originally was going to be a, a, a surprise Christmas present, Christmas drop for our listeners. Um, unfortunately, I think Sam and I thought, what, what, when was Christmas, Sam? When did we have that in they, our mind? They had it on the 25th this year. Oh, God. And you thought it was on the 28th, right? I guess. I, I wasn't ever going to. I was thinking somewhere between the 28th and the 30th. I don't know. I don't know. But, don't um, time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, enjoy the uh, bonus content. Um, as Sam said, we're into extra credit. So we love uh, extra credit. Lots of extra credit with this podcast. So, we so the beef here is we're going to talk about a a fascinating, morbid, and and very confusing film called The Innocence, which right. uh, was released in 1961. Yes, and I think we'll I think we enjoyed the film, and I think you'll enjoy the episode. Okay, let's dive in. <laughs> Happy Christmas, Yoko. I mean, Sam. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, well, <laughs> I um, here we are. Here and we are. I'm I'm so I'm so nervous that I I don't even know how to speak my language, my native tongue anymore, because this is our debut broadcast podcast. It's it's a it's our it's a, the Christmas pudding episode of the Celluloid Pudding Podcast is what it is. It is. It <laughs> is. <laughs> That's exactly I what know it is. New York. Um, <laughs> in fact, this is a de- debut podcast called the Celluloid Pudding Podcast. Yes. Why did we choose that name? We chose that name because, uh, you know, pudding <laughs> from the Germanic root pod. <laughs> yeah, meaning uh, guts, right? Meaning guts, right? Yeah. Think of a haggis, actually. A stuffed, a stuffed skin bag, filled with meat and blood and guts, and lots of details about movies that we like. So this is the old world version of pudding, uh, you know, with all kinds of savory things in it. Not the the pleasant, sweet butterscotch and milk pudding um, uh, of the new world. That's that is true. The new and and modern world. And celluloid sort of speaks for itself. So what we're going to do is is just think about various films that we love. And we're both cinephiles, right? So we like everything from the dawn of, of cinema time to the most current fare and yep. anything in between. Right. And, um, and today, because we're, what, when's Christmas? It's this Saturday. Christmas is this, this Saturday. Year they're doing it on the twenty fifth. And and when we when we post this episode, we're hoping to drop it uh, on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, and why is that? Because because there's a long tradition of sitting around the fire, sitting around the hearth with your mates, and telling ghost stories. Yes, that's what we're doing. We're celebrating uh, that tradition um of ghost stories and it's it's kind of funny i because I, I know you did some research on this sam uh why do 
or where where did that tradition come from? The well, ghost stories around the Christmas Christmas. Well, you know, Christmas. You know, it has some antecedents. <laughs> uh, midwinter, solstice, Sol Invictus, Yule. Um, all of these have to do with the changing of the seasons, and also a kind of veil which is lifted between the natural world and the supernatural world for a brief period of time. And of course, that brings to to mind ancestry, ancestors, and legends, and um, all kinds of ghoulish things when you when you start to deal with the supernatural world. And what better time to deal with the supernatural world when you have that thin curtain between winter and the winter you want to chase away just after the solstice, which brings spring forward. I I think you put that perfectly. And um, it's interesting, the movie that we're covering tonight, because... Uh, just a couple of months ago in October, it was uh, there was a little bit of buzz on social media about what what movies would people recommend the, to scare the pants off them themselves, yeah. uh, celebrate All Hallows Eve, and mm-hmm. uh, this movie came up in a top ten list, more than one or two top ten lists. What like. what movie would that be? That would be the movie that we're covering, which is The Innocents. Uh, released in 1961, starring Deborah Kerr as the lead, the yep. governor, and uh, Michael Redgrave also uh, starred the uh, the Lord, I guess, who the uncle of the two yes. sort of orphaned children, two two orphaned, lovely children. <laughs> and I'd like to mention that Pamela uh, Franklin plays one of the children, the girl child Flora. Yeah, uh, and. Martin Stevens plays Miles, who's a, a creepy little child, and I think they must have cast him because he was also in Village of the Village of the Damned as one of those creepy children. Yeah, so they thought creepy kid, and he was typecast from that point on. Um, right. He he already had the creep factor down. Um, he did. A little bit about Deborah Kerr. Um, Deborah Kerr or Deborah Carr? I think it's Carr. Okay. I've said it wrong all these years. I have said it wrong all these years too, but apparently when she was making her way into uh, American cinema hearts, um, they built her as she's a star, Deborah Carr or some, something like that. Um, but um, she got her film, she got her start rather young. Yeah. And um, some other notable films that she was in, obviously uh, The King and I, yeah uh she was the little lead in that she was also uh played opposite of burt lancaster and uh from here to eternity so that famous scene on the beach where the waves are pulling in the sand like that would be fun yeah and then also a film stand in your bits yes sexy stand in your bits and your crevasses um and also a, a film that I like very much, uh, starring an actor that I enjoy very much, um, An Affair to Remember with Cary Grant. Um, she, she does a wonderful job in that. So, uh, and she has... Yeah, it's a little saccharine, but yeah. I, I, I think there was a, uh, an appetite for that. I her prime. I just love Cary Grant and any, everything he's in, pretty much. So, All right. I'm a... Oh. Very grand. Okay, oh. can can I just point out that that of course the innocence is is um, the film version or adaptation of of um, <laughs> I can't remember your name. Well, it was Anne. 
It was uh, Henry James um, novel, The Turn of the Screw, which was published in 1898. And um, and what does it mean, though? What what on earth does the turn of the screw mean? Uh, what are we in for when we're, we've got the innocents? OK, the innocents are the children. But from the original text, the turn of the screw, wh what's that all about? Well, uh, you know, he says uh, we'll, we'll talk about the the uh, the story, the actual story that the film The Innocence is based on here in a second. But okay. I took the the turn of the screw to quite literally as in thumbscrews. Yeah. Um, you know, the sort of torturous tension. Yeah. And, um, the. The Turn of the Screw is a, is a short story, and uh, it, it's set along the uh, tradition of the Christmas Eve ghost story. And, and he opens, I have the text actually right here, and he, he actually refers to uh, the story had held us round the fire sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as on Christmas Eve in an old house, as strange tale should essentially be. So that's the a, a house, uh, of course, to add to the atmosphere, a house not unlike the house we're situated in this this cold and wintry evening. And so. um, I have because of because we were going to do this, I um, I went searching for Christmas ghost stories yeah. and. There's lot of them and um, I highly recommend a podcast called Classic Ghost Stories by Tony Walker. He's also a writer who yeah. writes ghost, ghost stories and he narrates all these classic old ghost stories, uh, some in the traditional vein of the Christmas ghost story, but there's there are a lot of ghost stories that he, he covers and he, he will actually also uh, do some ghost stories that are um, in in the classic dial or in the traditional dialect, such as Scots or I broad Scots Irish. So he's his podcast is a lot of fun to listen to. Okay, he lest our listeners or listener, as the case may be, um, might might wish to switch over to that established um, and, and great <laughs> podcaster. Let's let's delve into ours. We are we are, but Keep I our, would... our audience, you know, on the edge of their seats. I know, so, but so this this film, this film. Okay, we're, we'll get to that film. We will get to the film. Plenty of time. We're only ten minutes into this podcast. Let's chorus. Get to the chorus. We're gonna get to the chorus. All right. The build up. All right. This is so the turn of this group is in no, literary terms. No play, are you? Um, an act of defense uh, of suspense, I should say. It could be defensive, but it's a, a suspense building device. The turn of the screw. Yes, it is. And he mentions, uh, you know, there's a formula to these stories. And it right. usually starts with a bunch of guests in some old country estate gathered around the fire. It's Christmas Eve. And uh, someone tells a ghost story and people are like, "Ooh, that was pretty good. And that's kind of that's exactly how this story starts out. The turn of the story. What, what sort of this social um, soiree like brickmanship, right? So I'm going right. to tell the story, and you've got to kind of one up the the previous. Absolutely. Which is how this um, it's a frame narrative, which is of course a, a well known literary device, the frame story in movies and literature, and um, and it's also in, in the book. It's a first person tale. Um, but the film just starts from the get-go with that that um, uh, that flashback that is covered in the frame story of the novella. 
Yeah, it it doesn't really um, cover the frame story in as you know the, the 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 short story itself starts off with the frame story. Yeah, uh, the the gentleman retelling this the tale, which is actually not his tale. He just has the transcribed manuscript, right? Right. Um, he he jumps in. These ghost stories are being told, and he said, "Oh well, if you think." that ghost story was scary or then that ghost story was scary uh what'll wait till i tell you about this story and and, and he knows what he's doing like he's yeah. drawing it out he's like well i've you know it's not not gonna i've got to send for it i've got to send my man for it and um it, it's just so astounding i haven't looked at it since since i first took down these impressions it's all very vague how he got these impressions too uh, sure. about this ghost story Right. And interestingly enough, it, it, it's not really touched on that much in uh, or, or if at all in in the movie. It sort of just starts outright with her meeting uh, the the uncle, the uncle. Yeah. The uncle, the Lord of, of Bly House, who the Lord of yeah. trapped with these two small children that sort of encroach on his uh, very busy uh philandering bachelor life in the city yeah you know what i'd be curious to how did you interpret the uncle when you uh because he he only has that one uh appearance in the whole film in the very very beginning he's and alluded to a number of times though and in the book he's um he's described as debonair charming seductive uh no woman can say no to him and the Deborah Carr character is is smitten from the get go. She's just a small country parson's daughter, unworldly, and twenty years old, and and he's really laying it on, and 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 she she falls for that. She succumbs to his seduction. I you know I wanted to uh, bring this up. Did you know that Deborah Carr was about forty years old when she made this picture? Well, that's that's something I wanted to mention. She's supposed to be twenty. This right. you know, freshly scrubbed country girl, and you know she's a little long in the tooth for the part, but she plays it really well. She I you plays know what crazy really well. Damn, I you know what I think in numbers only she did not she did not look almost forty in the film. No, she didn't to me at all. She looked maybe thirty. Certainly not forty. No, uh, and, and we can we can probably thank the director Jack Clayton for the beautiful cinematography. Right. Um. And he he was really against CinemaScope, and the studios were all about CinemaScope. Nineteen sixty one CinemaScope. That's got to be it. And he chose color, or black and white rather. And his way around CinemaScope was a really interesting technique of blurring. Um both edges of the frame and that, and and placing his actors in certain ways so that he could have the vision that that he wanted the look that he wanted um there again there's the the uh we were talking uh, when we were discussing movies before um before we started podcasting about the anamorphic lenses and the anamorphic lenses actually come into play here yeah and um and it has a beautiful effect and um, there's a really good article on this film that was published. Um, it came out in September this past year yeah. by Mike Shutt in Collider, uh, digital magazine Collider. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's titled 
how the innocence uses cinemascope to scare you and he can <laughs> a lot of the different uh, technical aspects that's ironic considering his hatred of, of cinemascope um <laughs> and, um there's a bunch of techniques, uh, that, or there's a couple of specific techniques that uh, the article goes into. So for any of you technical buffs out there, and Sam, I, I know you're into photography, um, it might be an interesting article, but that's in Collider uh, this past September. Yeah. And um, what I thought was interesting is that uh, he did mention in the article that he emphasizes the darkness uh, in the edges and that the the where the focal point is on the subject, whether it's right. a single person or say the two children, yeah. um, they come heavily into focus. Yeah. And and he said, as you're watching the film, the audience is constantly sort of peering in the dark to see like what's lurking there. And it really adds to the atmosphere of the film. It it does. And he also um, places his actors, I read, and, and now I've forgotten the source, um, but he has that blurred dreamlike effect on the edges. And also he places his actors, if there's a dialogue scene between, say, the two, two of the main characters, and that would be the governess who, who is hired and the housekeeper, Ms. Uh, Gross, he places them on either end of the, the screen spectrum um, with this, a lot of negative space between them. And only the children are really ever connected, except for some pivotal scenes, which are a little disturbing. Yeah, the children are interesting. I didn't find them as, you know, in the story, I did not find them as nefarious as I did in the film. <laughs> no, I, I didn't either. And and also in the story, it's first person from... Uh, Miss Giddens, uh, who I think they named just for the movie because I think she remains uh, nameless. Correct me if I'm wrong in the story, and it's it's told as a confessional. Yes, in the in the story, why would she do this? Um, yeah, the structure is interesting because really it starts off with it's a ghost story, but it's not a ghost story because you kind of you're kind of in on the joke the beginning of in the in the frame story you're in on the joke because he talks about griffin's ghost story and he and and the narrator who is not douglas okay yeah. he's observing everything that's going on in this uh christmas eve parlor game of telling yes. ghost stories and um and he says oh he's cooking up a good one right <laughs> he's got yeah. a good but then the and, way and there's always uh, the, the the main storyteller what what's his name douglas and and to the first person narrator, the other guy in the room, he's sort of winking at him and saying, you know, I've got these other folks on the hook, but I I, I know that you're probably going to see through this. You, right. you see the the um, the promise I'm making, you know, to to reference the prestige and those three parts of, of of a good movie, the 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 promise, the turn, and then uh, and then the payoff. Right. Um, but it's it's actually a he reveals that it's in a manuscript. He doesn't have it in his person. He doesn't have it in his, you know, dedicated, you know, dedicated to memory. So they, they send off to go get the transcript and uh, he hadn't written it down. He had actually, it was written in, Oh, I think he makes reference to the finest, most delicate hand. And yeah. we sort of a little personal involvement that this 
the author of this manuscript was his younger sister's governor governess right who was 10 years older than he was so and there's a mirroring right there he's he's talking about a, a massive crush he had on his sister's governess and what happens when we get to the story um some very uh, blurry lines between children and adults love paranoia uh, a whole a whole range of emotions yes um affections seem to be stimulated in an unhealthy way yes the best way i would this best and i would say safest way to describe it yes is this a clean podcast i think i've already used a, a an expletive but i'm not sure um i just like to just backtrack a little bit um so most of the text was taken directly from uh William Archibald's stage play version of the turn of the screw or the innocence rather. And somehow Truman Capote is in there uh, for the screenplay as well. So anything arch and, and, and probably um, dark, I think we could attribute to Truman Capote's input. And that's just a wild guess. Well, if you've read enough James and I think we should talk about James. (laughs) (laughs) What I whether you want to or not. Why <laughs> why use twenty words when hundred and twenty will do? I I don't know. Henry James is the king of run on sentences, and that yeah. is fear him so much in American literature. Um, and a board a period. <laughs> he just did. <laughs> Commas were his best friend. Semicolon um, in the circle. But, uh, if you've never read any Henry James and. Uh, in you, you will probably have to if you ever decide that you're going to major in any kind of literary. Uh, it, it's or... initiation process for all English majors, I think. Yeah, you must suffer through Henry James at some point, and it... uh, but I don't, I don't know that I, I really have hold like extreme contempt for his writing. <laughs> I well... think. Go ahead. <laughs> well, well, no, I, I think that the great thing is he, he hits upon themes that resonate with with most people and they lend themselves. I mean, he, he couldn't have known this, but but it turned out that they they're timeless tales and um, people like Jane Campion have taken on Portrait of a Lady, um, you know, uh, Jack Clayton for for the innocence and and. Let's see. Uh, I, I'm not sure when his first work was published. I just know that this was published in 1898. Okay. Um, Dickens, we, we know Dickens is, is famous for creating the, the Christmas tale. And right. he somewhat, you know, uh, ironically said that, that that haunted him for the rest of his life, that, that, that he was the, the Christmas ghost person when he had, you know... <laughs> Uh, I don't know an infinite uh, number of or, of words there. Flat line cut. Edit that part out. Um, um, <laughs> I I I just like to say regarding the film version by Jack Clayton, Pauline Kael said called it one of the most elegantly beautiful ghost stories ever made. I it stuck with me um, the first time I saw it, and it was one of those. Uh, incidents where i was at home 
this was pre Netflix streaming series. I'm thinking this was probably in the nineties at some point. And I just flipping through channels and the film was on TV yeah. and it came on and I don't, I don't know if it was a late night or if it was a late Sunday afternoon, but you are struck by the creepy music at the very beginning Yes. And you are also struck by there's Oh this... Willow Wally. Yeah. Uh, a very mature theme for these children to be singing and playing on the piano. Um tell us about the the song. The the uh the origin of the song. Well, I'd like to best, but <laughs> <laughs> I thought All right, let me look that up. Origin No, no. Uh of we song Oh Willow we... we got tomorrow night. Wally. Okay, we do. We do. Um, um, it, oh, it was written for the movie. Okay. Um, so the first trailer of The Haunting of Blind Mountain. Well, but wait, wait, wait. We're not going into that. Hell no. Um, they use it in the um, in the series that we're not going to discuss The Haunting of Blind Manor. Well, uh, we, can, we can mention the, the Haunting of Blind Manor. There, there is a mini series that uh, Netflix put out, I think, two years ago. Yeah. 2018 2019 something yeah um and everybody had kind of followed it um but to me this is the this is probably for film buffs this is this is the film and uh i just remember seeing it and not on a big screen tv but seeing it and being very struck with the black and white and the uh this just the cinematography really yeah. really uh caught my eye couldn't yeah. take my eyes off of it and just the tone um it's one of those films where where i don't believe there's an overuse of score in it no I, and, and when it is introduced i i find it abrupt and a little bit um i i think overbearing so mm -hmm. uh i do like it when when direction calls for uh, just normal ambient noise and not not the score itself or that oh oh willow uh wally song that that recurs time and time yeah it, the uh, it's from a like a music box tune quality yeah. to it and and then she does in the film she does, uh, we don't want to give up too many spoilers in fact that's one of the things that we want to do in this podcast is entice people to watch some of the movies that we are uh discussing yeah, and we don't want to spoil them for you. Um, we just hope to entice you uh, and give you maybe a, an appetizer uh, to uh, spur your interest in in exploring some of these films. It is because it works on on a lot of different levels. It's it's always touted as a ghost story, and mm -hmm. I remember watching it decades ago in, in much the same way you did. I found it on TV. And I just thought these are ghastly little psychotic children. <laughs> I did not see it as a ghost story. Right. I thought she's neurotic. She's she's got some psychotic tendencies. She comes, you know, from the country into this worldly and lavish and opulent kind of environment where she's basically given the the keys to the house and told you are the supreme authority. Um, from from Parsons, uh, one of Parsons' daughters in the country to the great lady of the manor kind of thing. And um, and these kids, 
they're they're pretty sophisticated. They've gone to you know they've had governesses before. Miles has been to boarding school. They have this this very you know sort of uh, wealthy uncle, the the quintessential wealthy uncle, and um, and all of the trappings that go with with the aristocracy including education and, and experience and exposure to travel and all that sort of thing. And here we have this uh, well-meaning, but not very worldly young governess who's, who's brought into this world. Um, so the first scene when she's brought to Bly Manor, it was a, it's a very short interview scene between the uncle uh, who appeals to Miss Giddens. And, and very, yes, very brief. And, and he kind of poses it as, can you, can you just do me this favor? Um, these poor kids, uh, they need somebody to love them. And you seem like a really, really wonderful woman. Can, can you do that for me? And I think he flatters her, you know, that's part of his, one of his gimmicks is, is to charm women. And he, he, he susses right away that that's how to get to her. I have a question for you. Sure. So why do you think it, because it, it they seem to make a lot of emphasis on the do not disturb me. No matter yeah. what, yeah. no matter what, you have you're being given complete control over these children. Yeah. Your word will be law. This is my rule above everything else. Do not contact me. Yes. Now ponder on that for he, a minute. Because well, it kind it conjures up, it does make the children seem it's kind of puts this sort of black pall over just handling those children at least to me it does it kind of sets it up that way it, it does but but he's constantly on the go he was on what in calcutta when he learned of his brother's death and that he uh he he now had these two young wards and um and in the book uh the, james does dwell on that a little bit that that the governess to be considers this a sort of test. If she can just do what he says and prove herself worthy as mistress of the house slash governess, that there will be an extra reward. And that's how they put it, an extra reward. And it's clear that she's smitten with this uncle after only two meetings and, and begins to fantasize about him. But what extra reward? Miles is probably how old? 10. 10, 10 years mm -hmm. old. So is she thinking if I hold out for another? For no, another she's sitting with the uncle at first. She thinks she's going to bag the uncle. She thinks she's going to bag the uncle. because he, <laughs> he, he turns on all the charm for her and she's extremely flattered. And let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, hold on. I'm, I'm just looking at my notes. So we'll cut it, cut out this bit. But um, uh, not named about Giddens. All right. So she goes to meet Miss Giddens, goes to meet, goes to Bly House to meet Flora. Um, and their first scene, there's a stream and they come at each other from opposite sides of the little stream. And little Flora shows, shows Miss Giddens Rupert, a little tortoise she has found and, and kept as a pet. And that's kind of her test one. Do you like reptiles? Can I scare you with that? Um, right. Uh, and, uh, what does this even say on my notes? Uh, oh, oh, I wanted to say when she first enters the home, she meets Miss Gross and Miss Gross is 
is really pleased that this governess has come because she's had to run the house, take care of the kids, um, kind of delegate to all the other staff members, all the other servants in this house. And she's super relieved to have Miss Giddens come along and they're going to be fast friends. Um, but in that meeting, um, there, there's this weird statuary that the directors made sure to include in the set design um, that is visible through every window and, of course, in the gardens. And there's a looming statue in one of the windows, which kind of foreshadows some of her either fantasies, nightmares, delusions, or if you're going the ghost story route, um, uh, the ghosts, the apparitions that, that she experiences that she comes across. I... Uh, the statuary and the I found it in, interesting that there's she finds the uh, before she sees the vision of what she thinks is a man standing there on the parapet right at the, yeah. the top of the tower yeah uh, she's wandering sort of there in the in the garden and there's a broken it's a broken cherub yeah isn't it and and bugs or beetles black beetles are coming out of the mouth. Yes. Um, so a little little taste of the grotesque, which I thought was a, just kind of a yeah. nice touch. Yeah. Um, I I remember the first time I watched this uh, that being very I I I found that the uh, who what was the name of the uh, young actor that played uh, Miles. Um, the young actor who played Miles is uh, Martin Stevens uh, from Village of the Damned. I'd be curious <laughs> if, if he did anything uh, older when he when he was older, uh, if he'd had yeah. any um, success because he's he's wonderfully um, he makes you uncomfortable. He does. He, he acts like a young man. Yes. You know his cheeky little innuendos, um, the way he he says, "My dear," you know, "Oh, my dear, come to my room," you know, and it's all very, um, I don't know, flirty almost, flirtatious. She is taken with their appearance, and it's very clear when she meets Flora. She's yeah, very she gushes over her looks and this angel and the most beautiful child I have ever seen on and on about Flora. And uh, she comments to Mrs. Gross, uh, well, if Miles is anything like Flora um, or is Miles anything like Flora, and then Mrs. Gross sort of assures her, yes, you will. You'll be carried away by him, uh, by his charms and his, his presence and Basically, he's just as beautiful as Flora. Yes. Um, and it, it kind of begs the question, <laughs> just how emotionally, emotionally, like, what is Mrs. Giddens' deal? <laughs> and um, He does have a deal, I'm telling you. Because, um, all right, uh, just to go into the story a little bit, um, she's having a wonderful time with Flora. Um she decides instead of, you know, formal lessons that the lesson will be to get to know one another and for the child to trust her, to let her take the lead and give her the grand tour of the house and the estate right. gardens and all that. Um, and she knows, uh, she notes that, that Flora is, seems wise beyond her years. She has uh, this, this self-possession, this confidence, she's articulate, um, 
she speaks beyond the usual, you know, monosyllabic uh, yes, no, yes, no. She she really has something to say about the estate. And at, at some point, while they're having a good old time, she says, Miles will be coming home soon. And she's super excited about that. And our heroine or our protagonist or our antagonist or anti-hero, whatever that woman is, uh, the governess, she says, uh, she, she looks confused and says, well, you know, over the holidays, yes. Um, yeah. But the floor is certain. Nope, he's coming home soon. Sooner than that. And yeah. these moments that we're, we are supposed to sort of interpret as supernatural. Yes. And, um, and it does make me wonder, because that's the big question in yeah. the film is, is, and in the story, is what is happening as you're reading the story actually happening or uh is it because in her heart mrs giddens has the temperament and the sensibility of an excitable child (laughs) i I think she does i think she's very childlike she's unworldly um she's uh, the uncle during the interview asks her if she has an imagination and she said oh yes i i can attest to that and in the in the text which we don't get to see but i'll just mention it here she talks about romanticizing the entire, uh, the entire affair. Um, that in her young romantic mind, it, it was like a fairy tale. And then, here comes the kicker, um, suddenly she receives a letter from London, from the uncle. Right. And in the movie, uh, Flora's helping her with her mail. The first one's from her sister. And then, then there's one from London. And Flora says, oh, is it from uncle? And and. She looks a little bit excited about that, Deborah Carr, Carr's character, and says, oh, yes, it's from your uncle. And then she, then her face falls because she realizes it's just a forwarded message from Miles's school, his boarding school. Right. And in this letter, uh, the headmaster says Miles has been expelled. Uh, and it, for, for uh, I... I... You know, I want to look up this this in the text exactly, uh, word for word, why he's expelled. But it for just unwholesomeness. I forget what the termino- the terminology that's used. It's used in the in the movie as well as it, the language is very specific. It's very explicit, but at the same time <clears throat> veiled, um, so you can write in your mind to many places, and uh, of course. Uh, Miss Gross, the housekeeper, says, oh, stuff and nonsense. Um, Miles is a delightful little boy. He's the best little boy. He's an angel. And when you see him, you're, you're going to realize that, that this, this is all a huge mistake. And then there's kind of a misunderstanding um, because uh, Miss Giddens, our governess, our new governess, uh, references the old governess and says, uh, was she pretty? What did she look like? Um, and Miss Gross says something to the effect of, oh, yes, they're all young and pretty. Um, and then he then she says of Miles, without naming him, she says he has the devil's own eye for that sort of thing. And yeah, uh, yes. And then she corrects herself very quickly. And she says, uh, you, you know, uh, his uncle, his uncle. Um, and uh, this obviously spooks Miss Giddens a little bit. It's it's the same weird feeling you get when at the very beginning in the frame story, uh, 
someone suggests to Douglas, was she in love? Yeah. Meaning the, the governess, uh, Miss Giddens. Yes. He, he alludes to the fact that she is, but then, and people want to know, well, who was she in love with? Thinking, well, was, was she in love with you, Douglas? Yes. You know, there is yeah. kind of insinuation. And, uh, and he's like, it's not, you know, it's, it will be made clear once I read it to you. So as you're watching it unfold, it's becoming on some level enamored, not, she's enamored with Flora. And I think initially she's enamored with the, she's enamored with Bly. She's right. With the uncle. Right. But I do think, and and you're probably right, Sam, with Capote kind of uh, fleshing out the Capote actually uh, did an adaptation of uh, William Archibald's uh, uh, play script, and um, his adaptation. I I can see him kind of nudging nudging the director to the dark side mm -hmm. <laughs> where uh you know the mrs giddens characters uh becoming drawn to drawn to miles in an unhealthy way yes it's almost like a transference because in the text i'll just reference the text um uh, in the frame story douglas says she was young nervous unworldly Mm -hmm. At the second interview, she finally engaged because she had had her misgivings in the first interview. She saw him only twice. That was the beauty of her passion. That's such a and how what you, does that mean? That the beauty of her passion is that uh, her passions could alight rather quickly. Um, and and it it also makes me think. Well, was she flighty? Yeah, and. And yet we know she's not flighty because Douglas said she was uh, a, a quality person for a, a, would be suitable of it to anyone of any any sort. I, I kind of took that to mean that mm -hmm. she should, she could be married to a gentleman, you know, or. Yeah. A, but, you know. but he does admit to Miss Gross in the text. She says, um, I was rather carried away in London. And Miss Gross sort of archly says. Uh, you aren't the first and you won't be the last. Uh, <laughs> meaning, you know, this is his MO. Right. He, he knows what to do with a, a young girl from the country. Right. So let's um, let's talk about the uncomfortableness, which is the, the references to um, sexuality in, in the movie itself. Yeah. Um, and, and the most obvious embodiment that would be the relationship between the former, the former governess, Miss Jessel, and the, the the valet or the the valet. Yeah, yes. it was. Uh, I I guess the uncle's former valet, uh, Quint. Quint, yes. Who appears only um, uh, when they allude to him, and uh, supposedly as an apparition. Right, Miss Giddens. Yeah. We think we think that's who she's seeing on top of the tower. At the uh, 
and, and back to uh, the the specific wording of, of why Miles was expelled. Um, the headmaster said he's been expelled. It was impossible to keep him. He's an injury to the others. And then the governess, Miss Giddens, begins to ruminate. And she says, I, I, I fear that, that did, did he contaminate? It Was he out to corrupt? And Miss Gross, the housekeeper, says something like, oh, come on now. Are you afraid this little boy is going to corrupt you? How uh, naive. Uh, yes. And that's, that's in the story and in the film. I remember that scene. Yeah. Um, and when they first meet, she, she brings Flora. Flora has this sort of sixth sense, but we learn later that she's actually written to Miles to say they have a new governess and she's pretty and all that. So you begin to wonder, well, did Miles, what else did he do to get home? Because he won't answer any of her direct questions about why he got expelled. What was school like? Did right. you have any problems? He just sort of changes the subject. And her first impression of him is from afar when he gets off the, off the train and she sees this beautiful boy. Right. And, and all of her misgivings just sort of melt away because she thinks, here is a, a little angel. Oh my goodness. All all of my misgivings were, were false. And and I, I see that we're gonna be the best of friends. He approaches her like a young suitor and says, How do you do? And presents her with flowers, like right. you know, like a young flirtatious gentleman. And and she sort of demurs and laughs and says, Oh, how sweet or whatever. Right. Um, but still, he's not going to answer any questions about school and says things like, you're much too pretty to be questioning me like this. You know, yes, these sort of offhanded um, sexist almost remarks like, don't worry, your pretty little head over these these problems, you know. Well, he and he his his tone with her is almost flirtatious, like a rake, you know, very much like his uncle. Yeah. Um, his first night in bed, he's in his bedroom and she's been in to check on Flora, you know, watch her say her prayers and all that. And uh, and then as she's walking by his closed door, you hear him say, why don't you come in, Miss Giddens? Uh, <laughs> you know, come on in. Uh, in this, not a childlike way at all. It's very disturbing. And I, I remember just the first time I watched that film, just having this growing contempt for his character. Because I think part of me, and, and I think this is, you know, this was probably the director uh, director's intent, right? Yeah. Want to identify with the, you know, Jack Clayton wants you to identify with the governess and side with the governor. Yes. Uh, because then it just confuses your interpretation of what is really going on in this movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, who is really the nemesis in the, in this film? And, um, the, the innocent sometimes, uh, and I, it's, I think that's an interesting uh, title. It, it is. And it's bandied about in the film or in the text and the film, I think. In the text, um, when I'm jumping ahead, but Miss Gross doesn't believe that, that she's seen that the, the governess, Miss Giddens, has seen an apparition. Right. And, uh, and Miss Giddens kind of rounds on the housekeeper and says, oh, are you an innocent as well? as she becomes increasingly paranoid about this sort of conspiracy to, to summon these, these uh, unhealthy spirits. I uh, let's, let's talk about uh, Miss Jessel and Quint um, at least as they're presented in the, in the film. And, and I, we shouldn't get too much into the specifics 
Okay. Or the ending, because I don't I don't want to spoil it for anyone that has not seen the film. If you haven't seen it, it's it's definitely roll this one out for uh, Christmas Eve. If you like to be scared on Christmas Eve or uh, and or the story or if you're suspicious of creepy children, because it's really about creepy children, (laughs) I think. Not I chose not to have children because I of the movie. Creepy governesses. <laughs> and creepy governesses. Um, you know, we... total strangers have complete charge of your children. So... I, remember, I remember, um, you know, because I've read the story more than once, which it's funny because I, I, I can't, it was so long ago that I can't remember a lot of the, the, the nitty gritty yeah. um, with reading the text again. And I, I've seen the movie probably two or three times. Um, and it, it is funny for me, the governess has probably the first time I saw her and felt more sympathetic towards her the second and, and was completely repulsed by Miles's character, absolutely repulsed by him. Um, and I didn't feel sorry. <laughs> I hate to say this. I didn't feel sorry when he, you know, at the end of the movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't either. I, I just thought, uh, well, we'll get to that. But um, uh, w- let me backtrack a little bit. Imagery. Um, did you notice there are white roses inside, outside, almost at all places? And I'm wondering about the white rose imagery. The statues and white roses seem I to be. The, uh, the, there is a symbolism of, you know, we, we associate white roses. I think the common modern interpretation is uh um an apology or a sar um purity would be one Hmm? well also white roses are purity right you in 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 many senses uh yellow and red roses there are more romantically linked right and white roses are more you know almost either funereal or pure I don't know which. Yeah, there's a yes, a purity associated with it, but I think there's also funereal. I think also kind of just uh, ring rings. Uh, it, it evokes the dead. White roses. It does they do? It does and all those statues um, are are very. It's representational art and and very life lifelike, almost like oh, who did a La Belle Le Pet, Jean Cocteau. Um, uh, it, you almost think they're going to follow you with their eyes or, or, or start to hold out candelabra or, you know, move in some way. They're very much a sort of uh, extras in the film, these statues. You are more well-versed in, in uh, some foreign film than I am. So I, I, I don't get the reference, but I... Oh, okay. Well, that's okay. I just want to say one more thing about Miles and his, and his sleazy way of, of speaking right. to this older woman, this 10-year-old boy. All right, when she's tucking him in to bed, uh, the wind blows open the shutters and blows out the candle. And she kind of jumps and looks a little frightened. And he says in this in this very sl- silky way, it was only the wind, my dear. You know, <laughs> you know? Is, it is very uncomfortable when she goes to his bedchamber. Yeah. That when they are alone, Yes, it is. And when he kisses her, good night. Come on. That's yes, that and and I like I said, I vacillated in all the times that I've seen this movie, read this story um, to I think the last time I actually actually had to deal with the story itself. um, I might have actually been um, 
covering it in in a class but uh just the part of me just found her character so humorous thinking and i i think in a way i i had imagined her like a flighty almost uh um flighty histrionic um woman of you know in her late 20s that um sort of like re- recalls that line from my last duchess she liked whatever she she liked whatever she looked on and her looks went everywhere in other words yes. <laughs> yeah. by everything so it and i it kind of like brings a chuckle to to my you know to my brain i just kind of get amused by the silly the silly woman and then i start silly woman a silly silly woman and i I kind of think well you know james has had some criticisms you know about uh sexism and that his characters are even though he writes a misogynistic bent um i i'll just say it um and he has that reputation right and yet he chooses a woman's voice. He, he, his, he channels uh, a lot through his, his work, uh, the female voice. So that, that's interesting to me. Is he trying to get to the bottom of what, what you know, the stronger sex women yeah. are, are about? Or um... does, he, does he just find all women silly? I don't think he does. I think there's a particular type of woman that he probably respected and appreciated and that would probably you know who's the real innocent in this story probably mrs gross probably yes well uh no she's in on the past she's in on the former governess and quint quint is an enigmatic character right he he apparently went to the house Bly house because he was sickly and wherever it's located uh the weather there was supposed to uh, to be better for his health. He was given the same reins the governess, Miss Giddens, was given. You have full control of the staff, the household, the kids, and he pays uh, special attention to Miles. Miles is smitten with Quint, and Quint lavishes attention on Miles. Mrs. Gross says that, they, the, that Quint and Jessel used the children. Or no, no, she doesn't say that. Miss Giddens does that. She, they use well. They kind of both do, because the Gross ex, explains that basically they were, you know, carrying on in front of the children this romance. She she says something to the effect of, um, in any room in this house that you could decently sit in daylight, it were treated as if it were the deepest, darkest woods. You know, so in this roundabout way, saying you know they had it in any room in the house. That conjures up all kinds of visuals, doesn't it, though? Yeah, <laughs> it, it does. It so does. Just want, walking in on Jessel and Quint in flagrante delecti uh, in the, in the schoolroom. That, that, and, and also, he, he pays special attention to Miles, right. uh, you know, if you want to go there. Um, and Miles is smitten with him. And Miss Gross uh alludes to the fact that he's he's a an odd fellow with very different ways and at some point um and and i won't say too much but miles does admit he says regarding being expelled from school i'm different 
And that's as far as he'll go. Please join us for part two of this episode coming this evening. We will continue to discuss and dissect the film The Innocence.